Section 11 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 1 by John Tullock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4, John Hales of Eton, Religion and Dogmatic Orthodoxy, Part 3. The acknowledged writings of Hales are contained in three small volumes, edited by Lord Hales, Sir D. Dalrymple, and published at Glasgow about the middle of the last century by the well-known printers of the name of Foolis. During his lifetime he published, or permitted to be published, only one or two sermons which he had preached at Oxford and St. Paul's Cross, and a sermon on duels which he had preached at The Hague. The tract on schism was also published during his lifetime, apparently in an unauthorized form. After his death, his friend, Mr. Farrandon, undertook to prepare a collection of his writings, and to prefix to it a memoir. But in writing to the London bookseller who had urged him on the subject, he says, I am like Mr. Hales in this, which was one of his defects, not to pen anything till I must needs. The result was that he died before he had completed his preparations. Dr. Pearson, the well-known Bishop of Chester, so far took up his unfinished task, and the golden remains of the ever-memorable Mr. John Hales of Eton College, etc., appeared in 1659, but without any memoir. The bishop prefixed, however, an epistle to the reader, in which he drew a careful character of the author, from which we have already quoted. Nothing can exceed the enthusiastic admiration of this well-known and highly orthodox divine for Hales's genius, learning, and theological capacity. He was a man, he thinks, of as great a sharpness, quickness, and subtlety of wit as ever this or perhaps any nation bred. And, as a Christian, none was ever more acquainted with the nature of the gospel, because none more studious of the knowledge of it, or more curious in the search. Footnote. The following additional sentences from Bishop Pearson's Elogium on Hales, to which allusions will be found in the text, may be quoted. Quote, his industry did strive, if it were possible, to equal the largeness of his capacity, whereby he became as great a master of polite, various, and universal learning as ever yet conversed with books. Proportionate to his reading was his meditation, which furnished him with a judgment beyond the vulgar reach of man, built upon unordinary notions, raised out of strange observations, and comprehensive thoughts within himself, so that he really was a most prodigious example of an acute and piercing wit, of a vast and illimited knowledge, of a severe and profound judgment. Close quote. End of footnote. Second and third editions of the Remains appeared in 1673 and 1688, and also, in 1677, a new volume containing several additional tracts without preface or advertisement. In Lord Hales's edition, which professes to be complete, all these writings are collected and presented in a uniform shape, prefaced by various testimonies concerning the author. The value of Hales's writings consists not in any elaborate treatment of theological questions, but in the singular spirit of enlightenment and calm, penetrating, comprehensive wisdom which pervade them. They contain no special treatise to which subsequent ages have appealed as a model of theological exposition or argument. They are only tracts, sermons, or letters, and the sermons are neither rich with the jeweled eloquence of a Jeremy Taylor, nor weighty with the solid reasoning and systematic power of a Barrow. But there is in all our author's writings exactly that which so many theological writings want, the light of a bright, open-eyed, candid intelligence, which sees frequently far beyond the range of the most powerful systematic intellect straight to the truth an acute and piercing wit, a wise, calm, and profound judgment. A great reader and student, versed in a various and even, according to Bishop Pearson, a universal erudition, he is yet entirely free from the pedantry of learning, a rare attainment for his age. His accumulated knowledge of books and systems never encumbers him. 
he never or rarely uses it as materials of exposition or stuff for dilating and parading arguments in themselves worthless after the prevailing fashion but all his knowledge has become an enriching basis of his own thought and raises him above the vulgar reach of man to see for himself clearly and widely it has entered into the very life of his quick and genial intellect and contributes to the wealth of his meditative insight and his tolerant comprehensive and sweetly tempered genius the simplicity and breadth of his religious thought are astonishing for his time he goes to the heart of controversies and distinguishes with a delicate and summary skill the essential from the accidental in religion as in other things hales's works may be said to be of two classes miscellaneous tracts and pieces such as mostly fill the first of the three volumes to which we have adverted and sermons which compose the greater part of the two remaining volumes about the half of the third volume is occupied by his letters from the synod of dort these letters of course with the exception of his oratio funebris on the founder of the bodleian library are the earliest of all his writings as to the others it is impossible to fix their relative chronological position we have already given our reasons for believing that the most significant of his undated tracts that on the lord's supper belongs to about the same period as his tract on schism and most of his sermons probably belong to the same or a still earlier period although not collected nor with a single exception published till long afterwards footnote the sermon of duels which he preached while resident at the hague End of footnote there is no evidence of his writing anything after the commencement of the troubles in which he and his friends were so directly involved and no trace in the volumes of allusion to subsequent events or the special controversies which they called forth it is impossible therefore and unnecessary to attempt any further arrangement of his writings his favorite ideas are scattered here and there through them all now simplified and popularly illustrated in a sermon and now urged with more brevity sharpness and incision in a tract we shall accordingly draw our quotations from them as may suit our purpose and endeavor to present his ideas under some sequence of thought or subject rather than in any order of growth or time one the first aspect of his teaching which deserves attention is his clear exposition of the principle more or less underlying all his thought that theological or dogmatic differences are not really religious differences and should not break the unity of common faith and worship all theological opinion implies certain human additions to the religious element certain conceits of men which in their very nature provoke and admit of diversity of criticism but this diversity is no ground of religious separation there is no reason why men of very differing opinions in such matters should not worship together the liberty of judging which hales took to himself he not only extended to all but he felt that such liberty was an inherent christian right which it was the business of the church not only to tolerate but so to speak to educate and find room for it was not difference of opinion which the church had to fear but the hardness and perversity of will which turned such difference into a cause of unchristian estrangement truth and error were after all each man's own responsibility and even those who fell into error might be nearer the truth in spirit than those who professed to hold it he thought says clarendon quote, that other men were more in fault for their carriage towards them than the men themselves who erred and he thought that pride and passion more than conscience were the cause of all separation from each other's communion and he frequently said that that only kept the world from agreeing upon such a liturgy as might bring them into one communion Close quote. this is the keynote of a great deal of his writing it is not the variety of opinions he says in one of his sermons quote, but our own perverse wills who think it meet that all should be conceited as ourselves are which hath so inconvenienced the church 
were we not so ready to anathematize each other where we concur not in opinion we might in hearts be united though in our tongues we were divided and that with singular profit to all sides it is the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace ephesians four three and not identity of conceit which the holy ghost requires at the hands of christians Close quote. then he gives an instance in which there is plainly a reminiscence of the synod of dort extended quote. i will give you one instance in which at this day our churches are at variance the will of god and his manner of proceeding in predestination is undiscernible and shall so remain until that day wherein all knowledge shall be made perfect yet some there are who with probability of scripture teach that the true cause of the final miscarriage of them that perish is that original corruption that befell them at the beginning increased through the neglect or refusal of grace offered others with no less favorable countenance of scripture make the cause of reprobation only the will of god determining freely of his own work as himself pleases without respect to any second cause whatsoever were we not ambitiously minded every one to be lord of a sect each of these tenets might be profitably taught and heard and matter of singular exhortation drawn from either for on the one part doubtless it is a pious and religious intent to endeavour to free god from all imputation of unnecessary rigour and his justice from seeming injustice and incongruity and on the other side it is a noble resolution so to humble ourselves under the hand of almighty god as that we can with patience hear yea think it an honour that so base creatures as ourselves should become the instruments of the glory of so great a majesty whether it be by eternal life or by eternal death though for no other reason but for god's good will and pleasure's sake the authors of these conceits might both freely if peaceably speak their minds and both singularly profit the church for since it is impossible where scripture is ambiguous that all conceits should run alike it remains that we seek out a way not so much to establish an unity of opinion in the minds of all which i take to be a thing likewise impossible as to provide that multiplicity of conceit trouble not the church's peace a better way my conceit cannot reach unto than that we would be willing to think that these things which with some show of probability we deduce from scripture are at the best but our opinions for this peremptory manner of setting down our own conclusions under this high commanding form of necessary truths is generally one of the greatest causes which keeps the churches this day so far asunder when as a gracious receiving of each other by mutual forbearance in this kind might peradventure in time bring them nearer together this mode of thought is now sufficiently familiar but it was far from familiar in hales's time and it may be inferred from his letters that it had only gradually grown up in his mind as the fruit of much reflection and experience of religious controversy his spiritual insight his sense moderation and candid deference to facts had borne him out of the current of religious partisanship and opened up to him a higher vision than was common to his contemporaries his mind was evidently in continual quest of truth he did not take up his opinions and then no more trouble himself to examine them he was continually going deeper in search of principles and mastering them with a clearer sight so as to recognize their true meaning and bearing and the modifications which they undergo a healthy modesty and constantly penetrating and subtle delicacy in consequence mark his conclusions he is reverential in the highest sense and yet keenly original he is reserved and yet he speaks out his mind in the face of what he must have known to be cherished prejudices there is a highly important passage from the tract on schism on the same subject extended quote. it hath been the common disease of christians from the beginning not to content themselves with that measure of faith which god and the scripture have expressly afforded us but out of a vain desire to know more than is revealed they have attempted to discuss things of which we can have no light neither from reason nor revelation 
neither have they rested here but upon pretense of church authority which is none or tradition which for the most part is but figment they have peremptorily concluded and confidently opposed upon others a necessity of entertaining conclusions of that nature and to strengthen themselves have broken out into divisions and factions opposing man to man synod to synod till the peace of the church vanished without all possibility of recall hence arose those ancient and many separations amongst christians occasioned by arianism eutychianism nestorianism photinianism sabellianism and many more both ancient and in our time all which indeed are but names of schism howsoever in the common language of the fathers they were called heresies for heresy is an act of the will not of reason and is indeed a lie not a mistake else how could that known speech of austin go for true errare possum hereticus esse nolo indeed manichaeism valentinianism marcionism mahometanism are truly and properly heresies for we know that the authors of them received them not but minted them themselves and so knew that which they taught to be a lie but can any man avouch that arius and nestorius and others that taught erroneously concerning the trinity or the person of our saviour did maliciously invent what they taught and not rather fall upon it by error and mistake till that be done and that upon good evidence we will think no worse of all parties than needs we must and take these rents in the church to be at the worst but schisms upon matter of opinion in which case what we are to do is not a point of any great depth of understanding to discover so be distemper and partiality do not intervene i do not yet see that opinionum varietas et opiniantium unitas are hasustata or that men of different opinions in christian religion may not hold communion in sacris and both go to one church why may not i go if occasion require to an arian church so there be no arianism expressed in their liturgy and were liturgies and public forms of service so framed as that they admitted not of particular and private fancies but contained only such things as in which all christians do agree schisms on opinion were utterly vanished for consider of all the liturgies that are or ever have been and remove from them whatsoever is scandalous to any party and leave nothing but what all agree on and the event shall be that the public service and honour of god shall no ways suffer whereas to load our public forms with the private fancies upon which we differ is the most sovereign way to perpetuate schism unto the world's end prayer confession thanksgiving reading of scripture exposition of scripture administration of sacraments in the plainest and simplest manner were matter enough to furnish out a sufficient liturgy though nothing either of private opinion or of church pomp of garments of prescribed gestures of imagery of music of matter concerning the dead of many superfluities which creep into the churches under the name of order and decency did interpose itself for to charge churches and liturgies with things unnecessary was the first beginning of all superstition and when scruples of conscience began to be made or pretended then schisms began to break in if the spiritual guides and fathers of the church would be a little sparing of encumbering churches with superfluities and not over rigid either in reviving obsolete customs or imposing new there were far less danger of schism or superstition and all the inconvenience were likely to ensue would be but this they should in so doing yield a little to the imbecilities of inferiors a thing which st paul would never have refused to do meanwhile wheresoever false or suspected opinions are made a piece of the church liturgy he that separates is not the schismatic for it is alike unlawful to make profession of known or suspected falsehoods as to put in practice unlawful or suspected actions the great practical question of church authority here suggested is the next under which we may sum up hales's views he thus briefly speaks of bishops and their due position Quote, they do but abuse themselves and others that would persuade us that bishops by christ's institution have any superiority over other men further than of reverence 
or that any bishop is superior to another further than positive order as agreed upon amongst christians hath prescribed for we have believed them that hath told us that in jesus christ there is neither high nor low and that in giving honour every man should be ready to prefer another before himself romans twelve ten which saying cuts off all claim most certainly to superiority by title of christianity except men can think that these things were spoken only to poor and private persons nature and religion agree in that neither of them hath a hand in this heraldry of secundum sub et supra all this comes from composition and agreement of men among themselves this and the preceding passage are amongst the most decisive in the famous tract on schism which only extends in all to twenty ordinary pages it is somewhat astonishing to reflect now how much noise this tract made not only when first written and circulated amongst hales's friends but afterwards when republished amongst his golden remains on the eve of the restoration the pen combat betwixt andrew marvel and parker bishop of oxford on the subject was only one of several manifestations of the interest which it excited at this later period and the significance attached to its utterances stillingfleet quotes it at length and with high appreciation in his irenicum and as late as sixteen seventy eight a prebendary of exeter thomas long b d published an elaborate examination and censure of it its very brevity and the light felicity and sense with which it touched a thorny subject contributed to its circulation and influence the opening sentences very well represent these characteristics of the writer Quote, heresy and schism as they are in common use are two theological mormos or scarecrows which they who uphold a party in religion use to fright away such as making inquiry into it are ready to relinquish and oppose it if it appear either erroneous or suspicious for as plutarch reports of a painter who having unskilfully painted a cock chased away all cocks and hens that so the imperfection of his art might not appear by comparison with nature so men willing for ends to admit of no fancy but their own endeavour to hinder an inquiry into it by way of comparison of somewhat with it peradventure truer that so the deformity of their own might not appear he defines schism as an unnecessary separation of christians from that part of the visible church of which they were once members it is ecclesiastical sedition or a wilful and open violence against that communion which is the strength and good of all society sacred and civil yet the great benefit of communion notwithstanding there are occasions on which consent were conspiracy and open contestation is not fraction or schism but due christian animosity and these occasions are when either false or uncertain conclusions are obtruded for truth and acts either unlawful or ministering just scruple are required to be performed while therefore speaking generally it is a crime hardly pardonable to break the knot of union amongst christians yet in speaking of schisms in particular many things are to be considered and the judgments of antiquity by no means to be accepted without hesitation there may be a schism where the real schismatic is not he that separates but he that causes the separation and again there may be a schism where both parties are the schismatics he then explains with some detail that all schisms have crept into the church by one of three ways either upon matter of fact or matter of opinion or point of ambition he takes in illustration of the first mode of schism the question of easter as controverted in the early church this matter he says quote, though most unnecessary most vain yet caused as great a combustion as ever was in the church the west separating and refusing communion with the east for many years together in this fantastical hurry i cannot see but all the world were schismatics neither can anything excuse them from that imputation excepting only this that we charitably suppose that all parties out of conscience did what they did in the donatist schism on the other hand the blame is found to lie on one side the donatists were plainly the schismatics 
yet he sees no reason why either of these questions should have broken the unity of the church Quote, for why might it not be lawful to go to church with the donatist or to celebrate easter with a quarto decimon if occasion so require since neither nature nor religion nor reason doth suggest anything to the contrary for in all public meetings pretending holiness so there be nothing done but what true devotion and piety brook why may not i be present in them and use communication with them the two further grounds of schism variety of opinion and episcopal ambition he expounds with special interest but we have already quoted the main passages of this exposition from the general purport and tone of the tract it seems hardly possible to avoid the conclusion that hales had in view the state of the church of england at the time he was writing and that he condemned by implication the arbitrary exercise of ecclesiastical authority then so prevalent in so far therefore as he yielded to the personal influence of laud or turned aside the obvious application of the great truths laid down by him he must be accused of timidity to some extent no doubt he merits the accusation the apologetic tone of his letter on the occasion has been already condemned yet it is only fair to him to show that notwithstanding all the deference of his personal attitude and his lack of courage he did not in any respect compromise his principles while having no wish for himself to dispute the fact of ecclesiastical authority he still claimed to have his own opinion as to the origin of this authority and only to yield to it in so far as his conscience and reason dictated his language plainly enough implies that he did not abandon his position as to the natural source of ecclesiastical power although he did not choose to urge it further Quote, let titles of honor and dominion go as the providence of god will have yet quiet and peaceable men will not fail of their obedience no more will i of aught so be that god in good conscience command not the contrary a higher degree of duty i do not see how any man can demand at my hands for whereas the exception of good conscience sounds not well with many men because oft-times under that form pertinacity and wilfulness is suspected to couch itself in this case it concerns every man sincerely to know the truth of his own heart and so accordingly to determine of his own way whatever the judgment of his superiors be or whatsoever event befall him for since in case of conscience many times there is a necessity to fall either into the hands of men or into the hands of god of these two whether is the best i leave every particular man to judge only i will add this much it is a fearful thing to trifle with conscience for most assuredly according unto it a man shall stand or fall at the last Close quote. three his rational attitude and clear sober-mindedness are especially marked in the two tracts on the lord's supper and on the power of the keys in both he goes very plainly and directly at his point the first has been already characterized as one of the most significant of hales's writings it is so in its treatment of the sacrament of the supper but particularly in what it says of the relation of general councils or assemblies to christian dogma or the settlement of christian truth the full title of the tract is on the sacrament of the lord's supper and concerning the church's mistaking itself about fundamentals hales controverts equally the romanist and current protestant view of the lord's supper the latter no less than the former appears to him to imply that the words of consecration are not a mere trope but really add something to the nature of the rite in his view the words are entirely figurative and the rite complete without them in instituting the holy ceremony our lord commands us to do what he did but quote, leaves us no precept of saying any words neither he adds will it be made appear that either the blessed apostles or primitive christians had any such custom nay the contrary will be made probably to appear out of some of the ancientest writings of the church's ceremonials our saviour indeed used the words but it was to express what his meaning was had he barely acted the thing without expressing himself by some such form of words we could never have known what it was he did but what necessity is there now of so doing 
for when the congregation is met together to the breaking of bread and prayer and see bread and wine upon the communion table is there any man can doubt of the meaning of it although the canon be not read it was the further solemnizing and beautifying that holy action which brought the canon in and not an opinion of adding anything to the substance of the action for that the words were used by our saviour to work anything upon the bread and wine can never out of scripture or reason be deduced and beyond these two i have no ground for my religion neither in substance nor in ceremony st ambrose seems to be responsible for the prevalent mistake it was he who said and posterity have too generally applauded the maxim excedat verbum ad elementum et fiat sacramentum but this is quote, an unsound ungrounded conclusion and implies the false persuasion that to make up a sacrament there must be something said and something done whereas indeed to the perfection of a sacrament it is sufficient that one thing be done whereby another is signified though nothing be said at all Close quote. the genevan view of receiving in the supper the body and blood of christ not after a carnal but after a spiritual manner finds no favor in his eyes footnote this view owes its authority he thinks to calvin and beza who have spread it over the face of the reformed churches End of footnote. to speak in any real sense of the flesh of christ in connection with the bread appears to him as unmeaning as the roman catholic phraseology as to the blood of christ being sacrificed and shed in the sacrament but only incruente unbloodily according to him there is nothing whatever given in the communion but bread and wine Quote, jesus christ is eaten at the communion table in no sense neither spiritually by virtue of anything done there nor really neither metaphorically nor literally indeed that which is eaten i mean the bread is called christ by a metaphor but it is eaten truly and properly and in this sense the spiritual eating of christ is as he says common to all places as well as the lord's table finally he adds quote, the uses and ends of the lord's supper can be no more than such as are mentioned in the scriptures and they are but two one the commemoration of the death and passion of the son of god specified by himself at the institution of the ceremony two to testify our union with christ and communion one with another which end st paul hath taught us in these few conclusions the whole doctrine and use of the lord's supper is fully set down and whoso leadeth you beyond this doth but abuse you quid ultra queritur non intelligitur passing to the further question whether the church may err in fundamentals he concludes first that every christian may err that will otherwise there could be no heresy heresy being nothing else but willful error but admitting this his supposed questioner still asks can christians err by whole shoals by armies meeting for defence of the truth in synods and councils especially general he answers emphatically some may suppose brusquely quote, to say that councils may not err though private persons may at first sight is a merry speech as if a man should say that every single soldier indeed may run away but a whole army cannot especially having hannibal for their captain and since it is confessed that all single persons not only may but do err it will prove a very hard matter to gather out of these a multitude of whom being gathered together we may be secured they cannot err i must for mine own part confess that councils and synods not only may and have erred but considering the means how they are managed it were a great marvel if they did not err for what men are they of whom those great meetings do consist are they the best the most learned the most virtuous the most likely to walk uprightly no the greatest the most ambitious and many times men neither of judgment nor learning such are they of whom these bodies do consist and are these men in common equity likely to determine for truth sicut in vita ita in causis quoque spes in probas habent as quintilian speaks 
again when such persons are thus met their way to proceed to conclusion is not by weight of reason but by multitude of votes and suffrages as if it were a maxim in nature that the greater part must needs be the better whereas our common experience shows that nunquam ita bene agitur cum rebus humanis ut plures sint meliores it was never heard in any profession that conclusion of truth went by plurality of voices the christian profession only excepted and i have often mused how it comes to pass that the way which in all other sciences is not able to warrant the poorest conclusion should be thought sufficient to give authority to conclusions in divinity the supreme empress of sciences this is one of the passages quoted by hallam to illustrate his allegation that hales's language is rough and audacious and that his theology has sometimes a scent of rakow from the charge of socinianism we have already sufficiently vindicated our author and hallam's theological perceptions if occasionally acute and subtle are too deficient in penetration and compass to make it at all necessary to renew the subject what appears to him scent of rakow is merely the strong odor of common sense and reason with his usual instinct this historical critic shrinks from directness and earnestness of speech and his cold bald refinement takes offence at the plainness of hales as at the warmth and natural robustness of luther a rhetorical swordmaster like bossuet is his model of a divine but a touch of nature we confess even if it be somewhat rough is of more value than any degree of mere external polish even in a theologian the passage which provokes his criticism in the present case is a forcible but by no means too forcible statement of an important truth for surely there are few things more extraordinary than the prevalent confidence of all churches protestant as well as catholic in the formal decisions of general councils or assemblies is it not astonishing that such decisions attained by mere plurality of votes should be supposed to impart a special stamp of authority a sort of sacredness to spiritual truth the survival of such a confidence in the face of the facts of human history and the common experience of the motives which more or less rule all such assemblies show how strong are the roots of reverence in the human mind and the delusion is all the more remarkable that it seems to rest for its only justification on a still deeper delusion as to such assemblies being specially under the guidance of the divine spirit Quote, it is given out as hales says that christian meetings have such an assistance of god and his blessed spirit and let their persons be what they will they may assure themselves against all possibility of mistaking i should doubtless he continues do great injury to the goodness of god if i should deny the sufficient assistance of god to the whole world to preserve them both from sin in their actions and damnable errors in their opinions much more should i do it if i denied it to the church of god but this assistance of god may very well be and yet men may fall into sin and errors christ hath promised his perpetual assistance to his church but hath he left any prophecy that the church should perpetually adhere to him if any man think that he hath it is his part to inform us where this prophecy is to be found that matters may go well with men two things must concur the assistance of god to men and the adherence of men to god if either of these be deficient there will be little good done now the first of these is never deficient but the second is very often so that the promise of christ's perpetual presence made unto the church infers not at all any presumption of infallibility in order to show this more fully he analyzes the term spirit which is so much taken up in such cases and shows how it must signify either quote, a secret elapse or supernatural influence of god upon the hearts of men or that in us which is opposed against the flesh and which denominates us spiritual men now of these two he concludes the former it is which the church seems to appeal unto in determining controversies by way of counsel but to this i have little to say one because i know not whether there be any such thing yea or no two 
because experience shows that the pretense of the spirit in this sense is very dangerous as being next at hand to give countenance to imposture and abuse which is a thing sufficiently seen and acknowledged both by the papist and protestant party as it appears by this that though both pretend unto it yet both upbraid each other with the pretense of it but the spirit in the second sense is that i contend for and this is nothing but reason illuminated by revelation out of the written word for when the mind and spirit humbly conform and submit to the written will of god then you are properly said to have the spirit of god and to walk according to the spirit not according to the flesh this alone is that spirit which preserves us from straying from the truth for he indeed that hath the spirit errs not at all or if he do it is with as little hazard and danger as may be which is the highest point of infallibility which either private persons or churches can arrive to the brief essay concerning the power of the keys is also highly characteristic it is a clear sharp sensible treatment of a subject which hundreds of pens have obscured rather than illuminated a single passage will sufficiently show this and indicate its line of interpretation the power of the keys is simply the privilege of declaring or opening the message of divine love to mankind it has no relation to any priestly or judicial function in the christian ministry and all who themselves have received the divine message or to whom the kingdom of heaven has been opened have equally with the clergy the keys of this kingdom committed to them Quote, every one of what state or condition soever that hath any occasion offered him to serve another in the ways of life clergy or lay male or female whatever he be hath these keys not only for himself but for the benefit of others to save a soul every man is a priest to whom i pray you is that said in leviticus thou shalt not see thy brother sin but thou shalt reprove and save thy brother and if the law binds a man when he saw his enemy's cattle to stray to put them into their way how much more doth it oblige him to do the like for the man himself see you not how the whole world conspires with me in the same opinion doth not every father teach his son every master his servant every man his friend how many of the laity in this age and from time to time in all ages have by writing for the public good propagated the gospel of christ as if some secret instinct of nature had put into men's minds thus to do you conceive that forthwith upon this which i have said must needs follow some great confusion of estates and degrees the laity will straightway get up into our pulpits we shall lose our credit and the adoration which the simple sort do yield us is in danger to be lost sir fear you not the sufficient and able of the clergy will reap no discountenance but honour by this for he that knows how to do well himself will most willingly approve what is well done by another it is extreme poverty of mind to ground your reputation upon another man's ignorance and to secure yourself you do well because you perceive perchance that none can judge how ill you do be not angry then to see others join with you in part of your charge i would all the lord's people did preach and that every man did think himself bound to discharge a part of the common good and make account that the care of other men's souls concerned him as well as of his own End of chapter 4, part 3